This is Mona Lisa Baseball, Episode 9. It is December 19th, 2021. On the cusp of winter, wrapping up the fall. Days away from the return of the light. You've made it through. Going to get brighter each day, you Northern Hemisphere folks. So, this has been a great journey. And this is the last episode of the season. Feels so good. Feels so good to get it out. We will see what will happen. That's the part that doesn't always feel good. Makes me very nervous. But the world moves on. So, I asked you a question when I began the first episode. If you could choose one decade and one decade only to be a fan of baseball, what decade would you choose? And I know hypothetical questions are usually pointless, but I feel like there is a reason for this one. So I'd love to know what you choose. Um, I'm going to give you kind of a chicken shit answer, unfortunately, because... It just doesn't seem fair. But before I ever ask the question, kind of what came up in my mind first, if I could travel in time, there was something telling me I want to see and experience the Lou Gehrig era. And what I think of as the Lou Gehrig era is the 30s. So that would be my original answer to that question. And I'm happy to stick with that. But as I was drawing up this episode, the 40s started really, really pushing on me. And I almost wanted to switch my answer over there. And then I remembered that the Warriors kind of messed up the the competition because uh, the likes of Ted Williams and whatnot were out flying fighter pilots in war World War II, and I'm thinking, oh, would I really want to give up four, three to four great years of baseball? But then, how good would that have felt coming back and getting getting the heroes of the game back in the league? So, my answer is, I would take the 30s or 40s, and then I started to think, well, shoot, might as well, instead of making it a coin flip, I would take the 50s as well. So, I guess the point is, it's not necessarily to come up with a bold, I'm going with this decade answer. But what goes through your mind while you're thinking of it? And and how you think of baseball because of that question? I'd love to know if you have an answer. But that's kind of the reason why I brought that up in the very, very beginning. Get all of our minds really, really thinking of baseball in its entirety. So there's a few things I wanted to get to in this episode. Uh, that I didn't quite get to in the first eight. So let's start with uh, drug testing. Drug testing, I I don't think really needed to happen until we all saw why it couldn't go unchecked anymore after Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. And it's not necessarily fair to blame it on those two 
but kind of like when Barry Bonds hits 73 homers, you you kind of bring it on yourself in a way where you did something so wild that the most eyes are going to be on you. And while it was very obvious in my mind that Brett Boone was probably roiding as hard and heavy as anyone, he kind of came and went. And records weren't broken. And if I remember right, Seattle was really good then. That might have been the year they won. What was it? 116? 114, 116, somewhere in there. Jason Giambi, you know, got an MVP out of it. Ken Caminiti, but they kind of came and went. Anybody who is a a true, I don't want to say true, anyone who considers themselves a baseball fan is going to know about Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and Barry Bonds. And I guess for the hell of it, throw Roger Clemens in there. But when it became obvious that the game was changing due to drug use, really, really obvious. I'm not talking about speed in the 70s, but really, really obvious. Baseballs aren't supposed to travel that far. And second basemen's aren't supposed to hit slap homers the opposite way. Something was off. And one of the things that propelled that further into its ugliness was the ballparks weren't having large enough dimensions. They knew that everyone wanted home runs. So it kind of, two things kind of came together at an ugly time. And it's not like, don't pretend that we all got it figured out in 98 when the home run record fell to McGuire. We were all loving the guy. And then I think Sammy Sosa hit over 60 homers two more times and, you know, baseball players in their union were defending themselves saying, I don't want to take a drug test. And they were able to keep that away. But at some point, somebody had to stop what was happening. And because it was bringing the integrity of baseball into question, and that ain't right. So that's how drug testing kind of became, could you say use it or lose it? Almost in that realm. Not cool anymore. Uh, Baseball is getting thrown off its axis. So what about current drug testing? Well, it's my opinion that unless you have a life or death job, I don't see why you need to be drug tested. I think we can all make our own decisions as adults. As far as I know, doctors don't get drug tested. Surgeons don't get drug tested. So having baseball players be drug tested to me is a little silly. So I came up with possibly a better way. I haven't put a ton of thought into this, but I think it's intriguing. If ballplayers don't want to be uh, pee in a cup and... They're like, oh, it's an invasion of my privacy. I came up with a slightly less invasive way, in my opinion, maybe not, but think about it this way. What if every major league ball player uh, took a picture of themselves with limited clothes on to see kind of the structure of their body? Maybe this could be one a month, uh, including the off season, because I know that's when 
people might want to add on a few extra pounds of sheer muscle. But that kind of seems fair enough. Take a picture of people's bodies and see if it's expanding in in a silly way. And if their bodies are starting to look ludicrous, maybe people are going to start answering questions, but you can always answer them, you know, what was the Kirby Puckett commercial? <laughs> you want to do a three-hour commercial? Because the commercial was saying, hey, we want to do a commercial of you working out, something like that. You, you can let them know what it is that you're doing in order to achieve such an impressive body that people would start asking questions. But if we start getting too invasive into drug testing and needing to know and everyone needs to be sober, you know what? If doctors don't need to be sober, I don't think baseball players should need to be sober. Uh, I had heard a rumor that uh, the year the Red Sox were playing the Yankees in the playoffs, 2004, the epic 3-0 comeback, Uh, Before the game started, the Red Sox either passed around the bottle of whiskey or each took a shot of whiskey to start the game. I don't see how that would be an unfair advantage. Would testing for alcohol and would that have made it better? Oh, you guys are coming into this game drunk. If you're at the top of your sport and you could play the game at a high enough level with alcohol in your system, I don't see how that's cheating. I'd heard another rumor, uh, and this is one of those, I'm probably fourth degree of separation, and now you're probably the fifth if you hadn't heard it, but (laughs) it was kind of my friend knew a friend that knew uh, a player on the Giants who claimed that uh, Tim Lincecum was an automatic wake-and-bake guy, whether he was taking the mound that day or not. I don't see that as an advantage for Timmy. In his own personal life, he might see it as an advantage. Everybody's body deals with a drug in a different way. And some people function the way they want to function having smoke in their lungs. I don't see that as an advantage. So why would we test for marijuana? It's just completely silly. So drug testing, I don't, I don't see any need for it at all. Let the players kind of be forthcoming with the pictures of their own body and let the fans decide if they're sniffing bullshit. It's not a clean body or I don't know if you're working out five hours a day, busting your hump, eating four steaks, doing the uh, Bradley Cooper getting ready for sniper put on 40 pounds, 6,000 calorie diet. You're welcome to do so. I'm not going to say that's healthy for you in the long run, but if you're trying to get that money and you need to build up your body, then do so. But steroids now are at the point where it's so, um, 
It's so outed and so exposed that I don't think anyone really wants to be linked to it anymore. Hey, granted, I'm sure people are still failing drug tests, but I don't think drug testing is going to help keep uh, athletic athletes. <laughs> That's kind of a silly line uh, from from choosing baseball. Oh, I'm really good at basketball. I'm really good at football. I'm really good at baseball. Let's not deter the true ball players away from this sport. Okay, so I didn't quite get to uh, drafting hitting pitchers yet and how this could really make the draft and the way people analyze pitching more obvious. That's not right. Not more obvious, more interesting. I really wish we could just draw a line in the sand right now and say National League is not going DH now or ever, period. And not have this sort of sinking, drifting feeling of, gosh, I don't think they would ever do that, right? The National League would never actually go that way, right? I really wish there was just a line right there. And so just the mere idea of scouts watching pitchers, talking to their organization about who they ought to draft, and going, and this guy can swing it too. That might be the thing that makes that pitcher just a little bit more desirable than another pitcher. You know, this guy throws 95, but this guy throws 93, 94, and he can slug too. And we could really use a slugger in the nine slot instead of a 189 slap hitter. I guess I'm at the point in the show now where I'm going to go through some things that I didn't quite get to in the first episodes that didn't quite demand a full section, but I can just make sure to get them said, get them out on the airwaves so that they're heard. Can we have more day games back? And even dare to play some day games during the playoffs? I know you're trying to get as many people to tune in as possible. I know you want that primetime slot. If we're going to get baseball back to its roots, we got to play more day games. Especially in areas that have beautiful summer weather. Beautiful spring weather. Beautiful fall weather. Can we just please play more day games? And then in places like... Well, I was going to say Texas that used to have an outdoor park. I think they have I think they have indoor outdoor now like old Enron. But in places that are stupid hot, stupid sweaty, it makes sense to play more night games, but don't make a dome stadium just because you built a park in a stupid part where the weather sucks. During the summer, you know, does anyone want to play in 95 degrees and 95 degree humidity? That's probably too sweaty. But we got to find a way to play more day games without bringing more dome stadiums 
into the sport. I think there's room for one or two dome stadiums that are really interesting. I'm not saying there's necessarily any there now, but just to keep keep it varied. Sure, there's one or two ballparks that play on turf, not real grass. Just to keep it interesting, I think there's room for that. I'm not opposed to having every stadium be outdoors and every stadium have grass. But maybe the best ones. And I don't know why I think this, but the kingdoms seem to be slightly more interesting than other ones. Maybe that's because all of my kingdom highlights are uh, Griffey-based. And there was something about Minnesota that seemed kind of interesting. I don't know. I think the the players might have hated both those places. But to a fan, there seemed to be something kind of interesting. I guess you compare them to um, any of the other ones. Um, well, you know, I guess I'm kind of thinking of Bush Stadium. And I'm kind of thinking of Riverfront and Pittsburgh and, and those really boring ballparks but those were those were open air i was thinking i was just thinking they were dome because of um the turf they used to play on but anyway i think you get my point i don't need to go into that any further um so let's go down the actually before let's go down the checklist um i'm gonna get this prediction out of the way this is another thing i just sort of jotted down and again i will read this uh because i think it came out nice and I think I'm stating what I'm really going for. So I'm just going to get this out there because I wanted to make sure to read it to you today. This is not what I want to happen, but this is what I feel is happening. And if something isn't done about it, will happen. Baseball will embarrass itself because it's greedy and everyone has an inflated perception of their own value. They will change the rules less fans will continue to involve themselves and the spiral will continue downward. The globe will not catch on because baseball is not the perfect sport it once was and the idea of growing the game for the whole of humanity will fall on its face. The trick will be to have the courage to pick itself up off the ground, dust itself off, and find out who it really is by going back to its roots. It is a wonderful play to watch and a beautiful spectacle. I read it perfectly until the last word. Let me read the last sentence. It is a wonderful play to watch and a beautiful spectacle. Wood bats in Little League. I consider myself a true baseball fan player to the core as much as anyone. Granted, I did not make it any further than high school baseball. Nor did I get to play many innings on the varsity baseball team. In fact, I don't think I ever played a whole inning. I think I was only a pinch hitter. With that being said, I don't really understand the crack of the bat in my own hands. I know about the sweet spot on a metal bat. I know how good that feels. I know about the sweet spot on a golf club. But the wood, the wood in the hands, I don't know that feeling. And we've kind of taken that out of every little leaguer's hands. 
I'm pretty sure when my dad was playing Little League in the early 60s, he had a wood bat in his hands. I'm jealous. Now, in the realm of, you know, the 1960s and 70s, save the trees, you come out with plastic, which seems like it's going to save the trees. Now we're dealing with a plastic problem that's way worse. Something that's not renewable. It makes sense why we went to metal bats. Also, if you watch enough college baseball, you get more home runs. You could jam a guy inside and he could still hit it out. Ting! Did we do it to try to save the trees? I don't really know why we shifted that direction, but I think it would be good for the sport if we started fudging back towards the wood bats. The traditional wood used is a white ash, and that's a tree that I've been told grows quite well on the east side of the United States. So all you farmers, gardeners, kids out there that want to help the sport in the long run, why don't you go ahead and plant yourself a nice white ash out in your yard? Why don't you make us a nice little orchard of white ash out in your field? Instead of having... 1,500 black walnut trees. How about make 100 of them white ash and do it for baseball? I hope that my kids get to know about the crack of the bat, the crack of the wood, and not just see it uh, from a fan's perspective and hear it, but actually feel it through their hands. Feel about hitting that sweet spot. The sweet spot is an emotion grabber. You can hear Buck O'Neill would talk about, never heard that sound before until I saw Babe Ruth, until I saw and heard Josh Gibson. And I never thought I'd hear it again until I heard Bo Jackson. You know, the way the sound interacts with your ears, your brain, that creates emotion. So not only hearing the crack, but feeling the wood in your hands, let's give that back to the kids. Let's talk about ushers and kids. I started going to games when I was six, I believe, and I always was able to look at the usher as my enemy. Now, going to events such as movies, concerts, uh, string quartets, I look at the usher as someone that can help me. This is a good thing. Help me get to my seat. But the ushers in sporting events have always been somebody that I wanted to dodge. Um, How can I sneak past this usher and sit my butt in a seat that is not going to be occupied by a fan? How many times have I been thrilled as a young boy or a young man just in disbelief that I actually get to watch an inning from this part of the park. Oh my God, I was never been able to sit so so close. And then an usher comes up to you. I need to see your ticket. Okay, ushers, be good to the kids. You got to understand that that kid might not have that seat, but this is the future of the sport, man. This is the future. This is the person that's going to be bringing their kids to the park. Will you let them enjoy the moment 
when it's worthy. I I understand that there might be occasional times when a fan walks in in the second or third inning and the usher actually has to do their job and kick the kid out of there and go, back to your seat, kid. But if no one else is going to sit in that seat, let the kid sit there. You don't need to be the enemy all the time, Mr. or Ms. Usher. Let the kids enjoy it. There will there will be a reaction. If you keep kicking kids out of the seat that's going to make them enjoy the ballpark the most, they're that much less likely to go in their future. How do you not understand that? Is it a power grab? You're an usher. How important do you think you are? Quit trying to be more important than you are. You're an usher. You should be there to celebrate the people that are most excited about baseball. I mean... Teams, owners, isn't that who you want to hire? The person that helps develop the love for the sport and the kids and everyone? Let's move on to uniforms. And in this mass grab for Friday night unis and let's let's get something you know more interesting and let's get spanish in there and 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 the whole thing those are nice ideas but aren't we getting to a point when you just want to go to a game and feel like you can rely on seeing the uniforms of your home team keep it classy at home is kind of what i'm thinking when i was going to warriors games in the 90s I knew they were wearing their whites and they looked really classy. Now this is before the, whatever you call it, jousting guy holding a spear. No, no, no. This is, this was the old, old warriors unis. Keep it clean. Keep it classy at home. I, you can, you know, mess around with some road unis, I think, but does a Yankee fan really want to see anything other than white with pinstripes? Let's go back and lean on the history a little bit. Keep it classy at home. Maybe roll the dice a little bit if you feel like it with your road unis. And if fans like them, they will buy them. Grass versus turf. Obviously, y'all should know where I'm coming from on this one. Grass is always going to be better than fake. Okay, let's pretend that Wimbledon said, oh yeah, you know, it's nice to play on grass and everything, but uh, this new surface we've created is actually better than grass. Well, it's not. That's the point. You're playing on grass. That's what makes it cool. Well, my dad would tell me they're playing tennis on grass when I was a kid. I didn't believe him. Like, what do you mean? You can't play tennis on grass. I'd never been on grass that was, what, two millimeters high. I did the same thing or he did the same thing to me or for me when he would watch golf when I was a boy. And I'd say, why does the ball roll like that on grass? And he said, well, the grass is really, really short. And I actually didn't believe when I was a kid that that was grass because it was rolling like it would on a linoleum floor. Yet it could curve without having seams, without having grout. And then when I went to my first putting green, the very first thing I did was I put my hand 
on the practice putting green. And I went back to him and I said, wow, dad, you're right. It is grass. Wow. And I kind of had a, a little giddiness. I remember that. I was nine. Eight, nine. I think I was nine. But I still remember that emotion. So can we stick to grass here? I've watched my high school turn its football field into fake grass. I've watched them turn huge swaths of lawn that kids play on uh, their recess in elementary school, junior high, turn those into fake grass. And you can come at me with, oh, well, it's more environmentally sound. Kids are, you know, busting ankles on gopher holes. We're not going to get anywhere if we just do nothing but coddle. You got to put kids on the real surface because there's an energy and emotional exchange there. Do you really think kids want to go out and play on plastic as much as they want to play on the lawn? Kids want to have dirt stains on their knees. They want to have grass stains. There's a part of the parents that even when they give their kids that look for coming home with grass stains, they're kind of proud of them. Get your kids out there. You don't need to keep coddling people. So I applaud Minnesota and Seattle for going domeless, going grass, because those are areas of the country where you could say, oh, a lot of bad weather. But really, April through October, is it really so bad that we have to be playing baseball indoors? I think it's a perfect way to celebrate the non-lockdown winter part of the year. Play outside. I mean, I would think people want to get outside and enjoy it too when you live in those areas. Hall of Fame. Just don't don't forget what the Hall of Fame is. It's it's this wonderful place that I haven't been to yet. My dad just beat me there a couple years ago for his first time. I have a a friend who has an item in the Hall of Fame. I've had another friend take a picture of that item in the Hall of Fame and send it to me. I really, really want to go. I really want to see the pictures, the artifacts, all the great things to it. But that's not really what I'm talking about is Cooperstown. What I'm talking about Hall of Fame-wise is if certain people don't get in, it's not, it's not the gold standard. It doesn't make it true. All it really is is journalism, uh, <laughs> journalists voting on something. And do you need a more crystal clear example of not taking the Hall of Fame too serious in terms of who's in, who's out, when Ken Griffey Jr. doesn't get all the votes? That he's not a 100% guy? You watch him play for his career and he's not a Hall of Famer? Is that not the dumbest thing you've ever heard? And I understand. I understand that Pete Rose got banned for life from baseball for doing something stupid. But he had an addiction. Other people in baseball have had addictions. They're in the Hall of Fame. 
if you want the Hall of Fame to be truly legit, the best players are in. Pete Rose is a Hall of Famer. I mean, I don't know the guy. He might be a total piece of shit. I suspect he's not. But don't look me in the eyes and tell me Pete Rose isn't a Hall of Famer. He's actually someone that you could raise your children saying, when you're out on the field, I want you to play like that. Try to play like Pete Rose. When I heard that Harold Baines got into the Hall of Fame, it made me roll my eyes because I was a baseball card collector. I guess you could say I still am to a degree, but not really all that involved anymore. But anybody who was following the sport at that time remembers Harold Baines being a good player and a guy you'd want to have on your team. Hall of Fame, kind of a no chance. So I just wanted to remind people that it's just a thing that journalists vote on. It's not the gold standard. It's not factual. It doesn't actually tell tell you who the best players are. It often does. It's probably almost always right. But just don't always hold it to the, hey, it's not a Hall of Famer, or eh, Harold Baines is actually a better ball player than uh, Pete Rose. You know anyone who'd actually make that argument? I don't think so. So just don't hold it to the only standard, whether you're in or out. Hall of Fame is it's perhaps doing its best to identify, but... I think there's too many of these automatic entry type of standards. You know, like 300 saves used to be one. Obviously, it's not going to work anymore. If you have such and such numbers, then you're in. I think we really ought to avoid that. And it's really, I think it's more about who other teams, players feared, changed their lineups change the way they played in order to deal with this really quality ball player. It seems like that's more important. You know, you take a guy like Koufax or whoever who doesn't have these remarkable career numbers, but anyone that played against them would say, that's the best player I ever saw. That's a Hall of Famer. So I got this other thing I've been thinking about. The playoff baseball fund. What if it became known that all the baseball fans on the globe or in America were aware of this fund? Where if you consider yourself a true fan, you could donate anywhere between, I'd say, 10 and $100 towards baseball for the year. And that would help fund public broadcasting to show some baseball during the season or show the playoffs or at least the world series. And you didn't have to pay for cable, but anybody who wanted to watch could tune in. I really like that idea. So let's go through some favorites. Looks like I got about five minutes till it's minute 40. I might go slightly over today, but I think that's okay. Might go over 360 minutes total. That's okay. My very first memory of being in my uh, uh, elementary school library was my teacher saying you can check out any book 
and read it in the library and you'll get credit for an assignment. And I remember thinking there's a sports section in the library and I could check out baseball books and still get full credit. I couldn't believe myself. I couldn't believe how lucky I felt like I was dodging somehow rerouting the rules that there's no way I could get credit for being in school by writing baseball books. First TV memory, 86 World Series. I didn't really understand the gravity of the Buckner play, but the 86 World Series was on in my house. And I remember, I'm assuming this had to be game seven, but the camera is showing the Red Sox dugout and showing some of these ballplayers crying in the dugout and my mom just being heartbroken. Kind of that that mom saying that, oh, bless their hearts. I didn't totally get it, but I remember what that felt like. Greatest in-person baseball memory. Me and some friends had an opportunity to go to the Giants-Dodgers series. Early September 1997. Two-game series. This is all off memory, so I hope I'm right. Giants entered the series down two. We didn't have tickets. We showed up to Candlestick. We all spread out, and we said, do whatever it takes to get tickets. I think we had maybe five of us. We painted our faces. First event I've ever, I think it's the only event I've ever painted my face for a sporting event. Went around looking for tickets, and we got the answer no a million times until one guy said, oh, wow. How many do you need? Yeah, I can get you five. I go, oh my God, how much do you want to charge us? He goes, I don't know. You guys look like real fans. I'll give you a uh, face value. What we did was we jammed our way into the bleachers and left field. And there was so much emotion in Candlestick. I mean, Candlestick really only sold out for football games. This is a very rare baseball sellout. But that stadium was pulsating. In the first inning, Barry Bonds, I believe it was scoreless, Barry Bonds came up third, Chan Ho Park was pitching, and he hit a ball so hard, I th- I would argue, if I ever meet Barry, I did meet Barry once, very briefly, if I ever met Barry again, I would ask him, I would say, I think I saw in person the hardest hit ball you've ever hit, and I would describe this home run. This was kind of like a center, right center type of home run that was hit on such a line, there was no arc. It just kept going up until it hit the facing of the upper deck. And it wasn't right field candlestick upper deck. This is right center, even closer to center. And some of you may have seen that when he hit that ball, he did a pirouette 360 in the box. I think that's the hardest hit ball Barry's ever hit, or maybe the most perfectly hit ball. Greatest in-person memory as a kid. Giants were, this is maybe circa 88, something like that. Giants were down one run going into the ninth. Greg Litton hit a game-tying home run to force extra innings. Will Clark hit a walk-off home run into the right field seats. This is the only walk-off home run I've seen in all the baseball games I've been to. Thank you, Will Clark, for that. 
worst worst in person sighting me and a couple friends went this was uh it was 2007 i believe giants phillies we had bleacher seats but second row bleacher seats were not taken so we sat there in the first inning and the people never came to relieve us of our beautiful seats. So uh, we were kind of center-ish, left center. So we had real good view. And Timmy Timmy Linscombe was starting the game, which is probably the reason why we went. Because one of the guys I was with was the biggest Tim Linscombe fan that I know. He was dealing. It's a really, really good feeling when your possible favorite player or pitcher is dealing. He was completely unhittable. Now, Bruce Bochy batted him in the bottom of the eighth inning, and I believe it was 2-0. So we knew Timmy was going to throw a complete game. He was completely unhittable. Now, if I remember right, the first batter of the ninth inning, uh, when Timmy was trying to close it out, I believe he walked that player or they got a hit. But I believe he walked that player. He was probably pitching maybe a two or three hitter at, at that point in the game. And Bochy came out immediately and uh, yanked him and brought in a reliever. Well, the reliever, it felt like the worst idea in the world. The reliever immediately either gave up two walks or a walk and a hit. And then they might have brought in another guy. And then Jason Wirth with the bases loaded hits a fairly high ball into right center into that most perfect, perfect, perfect placement where first base, second base, center field, right field, none of them can get to the ball. And it lands in the middle and it cleared the bases and the Giants didn't score in the ninth and they lost 3-2. That's the worst ride home I've ever had following a sporting event is I think the only word mentioned by any of us three on that ride home was the F word. And part of me still doesn't, Forgive Bruce Bochy for yanking him despite the three World Series victories. Ooh, that was a tough one. Okay, best uh, baseball book is Boys of Summer. I believe the guy's name is Khan, K-A-H-N. He wrote it in the 70s about his experience working for the Dodgers in the 50s for a newspaper and covering the team. Absolutely fantastic. Best visual baseball book is classic baseball. Walter Yost Jr. Hope I'm saying your name right. Not every picture in it for me makes you go, wow. But the amount of pictures in there that captures everything a true baseball fan would want are in that book. It is just phenomenal. Highlights. Currently, we're all using YouTube. Don't know where this is going in the future, but is it is it better than Griffey? You want offense? Don't ever let yourself pass up the eighth straight home run game by Griffey, the home run he hits there. Defense, he robs a, a ball in Yankee Stadium in right center. He also has a robbed home run in uh, Tiger Stadium. Right center goes a long way to catch it. And then Kenny Lofton has a robbed home run in Jacobs Field. 
So, so beautiful. Gary Matthews Jr. robbed home run in center field. Obviously, I like those plays quite a bit. Long-winded ones. Check out the whole ninth inning of the 86 World Series, Game 6. Vin Scully's in the booth. Put in the entire half hour. It's absolutely amazing. And same thing with the 88 World Series, Scully in the booth. Uh, I don't really care if you watch the A's hit in the ninth, but watch that inning develop and watch how Gibson ends it. And mostly just listen to how professional Vin Scully is when after he says, it is gone, listen to how long he uses the silence and lets the ballpark tell the fan watching at home what it feels like to be there instead of him trying to describe it with words. Announcers out there, do you try to describe too much? How often do you really just let the moment tell the story? Take some notes from Vince Scully. And Kurt Gibson in the 84 World Series, eighth inning, game five, Tiger Stadium. Watch that inning develop. You know, watch the way um, the coach wants to come out and pull his pitcher. Watch those interactions. So people, we've gone through COVID for almost two years now. We see this mad world changing right in front of our eyes. It's going nuts. How many people do you really know that don't feel like life's going too fast right now? Can we use baseball as the thing that brings us back to the correct pace to live at? It's this thing that's just waiting for us. It's this serum, this antidote to this world that's so blinding, so fast, so tech. We can take the tech out of baseball and it can give us the gift that it gave us for decades it will put our human bodies at the correct pace to be at. Let baseball be the antidote. The soul food. The foundation that steadies us again. It's right there in front of us. Don't let. Don't let the sport right now Take away the umpires because in the long run, it's going to be cheaper to not have to pay the umpires. They're embedded in the soul of the game. So did I answer your question, Mr. Broussard? Why can't baseball change? I did the best I could. It's December 19th, 2021, episode nine wrapped up. This is Mona Lisa Baseball, season one complete. Thank you so much. (laughs) 